Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, and our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did, and we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We make it look easy. We make it look good. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. I'm pretty sure we already have. So, welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and Apparently, there are a lot of households managing kids or family members with ADHD. Mm -hmm. According to the CDC, 6.1 million kids have been diagnosed with ADHD, or you call it attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but most people know it as ADHD. Mm -hmm. That's roughly 9.4% of kids. It's a lot. That's, yeah. And I did some digging. The average age of an ADHD diagnosis is seven years old. So, um, and symptoms typically appear between three and six. Yeah, and check this out. ADHD isn't just a childhood disorder. Um, about four percent of American adults older than eighteen deal with ADHD on a daily basis. So, in doing some research for this particular topic, I learned that ADHD can be rather difficult to. Um, diagnose the condition. Mm-hmm. Um, think back when the kids were between three and six. There's like plausible deniability. Like, may- oh, maybe that's a little weird. Right. But, like, they're kids. They're three. Yeah. So I-, I totally can understand that it would be hard to decipher. Yeah. So I don't know if you knew this, but my brother had, or maybe still has, ADHD. Um, and we were growing up, and this is like before anyone knew what it was. Yes. Um, and so I, I watched my parents try to figure out what to do. Um, we went on sugar-free diets. We had to eat puffed rice cereal with honey drizzled on it. We we all resented that. <laughs> um, and then we, we gave up dairy for a while. Uh, we, finally, we went to a counselor. Mm. Um, and then he went on Ritalin, and he was able to focus. But he had some issues when he went away to college and went off the Ritalin. So I did not know that. Yeah, so it's a— I it, bet back then, like, it was— Probably not diagnosed as much. You didn't hear about it quite as much as you do now. Yeah, it was it was very undiagnosed, untalked about. Yeah, absolutely. Talk, is right. that even a word? Yeah, right. Untalked about. <laughs> well, to talk about it. Yeah. To talk about ADHD and how to support our families and kids who may have this diagnosis, we're bringing in Dr. Sharon Celine. She's a top ADHD expert specializing in an integrative approach to managing it. She works on executive functioning skills, learning differences, and other mental health issues. She's had more than 25 years of clinical experience, and she's also the author of a book, What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew. Thanks for joining us today, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so we have not touched on this topic um, yet, and so we're rather excited to talk about it because, as we said before, there's 9.4% of kids um, have to deal with this and families have to deal with this. So is there a set of symptoms or conditions that fall under the ADHD disorder 
or does it look different for different people? Like, is it like, okay, you have this fever and this, these hives and this, you know what I mean? Like when you have other medical Mm -hmm, conditions. mm -hmm. Right. Well, I, I I think, thank you so much for asking. That's a very good question. I wanted to actually respond to some of the information you gave at the beginning of the hour, which is that, um, Currently in the United States, the rate of diagnosis of children and including teens is 11 percent. Um, and uh, the, while the average age of, of diagnosis for kids may be at seven, um, most of us who work in the field clinically would say that that is not when we see kids diagnosed, that we see kids diagnosed at different stages. And one is around seven, which is you've been in school a little while and, and things are different for you, for you as a child and we're figuring out why. Um, one also happens around third or fourth grade when there's a certain c- consolidation academic um, where you shift from learning to read and learning to write and learning what numbers are to actually reading to learn, to using numbers to solve uh, problems of higher order thinking and writing beyond self-expression, but now sort of for analysis. Okay. Um, uh, there's also when kids start middle school, high school, and when they go to college. So these are all sort of typical times when uh, it's, it, it can be easier to see when ADHD is really emerging because, as you said earlier, I think it's hard to tell when your child is between the ages of three and six what's typical at that age and what's not typical. Right. Um, uh, so ADHD is um, a diagnosis that refers to a persistent um, condition of hyperactivity, impulsivity, or inattention that is more severe um, and intense than we would see in peers of the same age. In order to receive an ADHD diagnosis, you have to meet the criteria for six out of the nine symptoms that are listed, and they have to be persistent for at least six months in two areas of functioning. So you can't just see them at home, but there's no issue at school, and you can't just see them at school, but there's no issue at home. It's usually, there are usually different issues, but that are related in different places that would lead us to a good diagnosis. And a solid diagnosis really involves a a multidimensional process that includes observing the child at school, that includes taking a very thorough family history and history of the child's life. It will include behavior rating scales, which, um, you know, reference how a child is behaving and acting in real time. And it often will include some educational psych testing, which would be like a WISC, an intelligence test, form, formerly called intelligence test, now called cognitive testing. Um, it might, you might be some visual processing tests, such as the Bender Gestalt or the Ray. And it would include achievement tests, often used um, the Woodcock Johnson or the Wyatt. And so we get all of that information together. And then you, you, pull to, you pull together what's actually happening for this child. And that helps us rule out other issues, which is, is it anxiety instead of ADHD? Is it PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, instead of ADHD? Or is it a learning, is it a learning disability? You know, we want to get as much information as possible and then um, kind of com- to pull the diagnostic picture together. So you mentioned nine symptoms. Can you go over what those are? Well, generally speaking, those would have to do with, um, uh, you know, an inability to uh, 
to stay, to maintain focus on things that are uninteresting and uh, to, di- to, to receive a diagnosis of inattention. Um, the, the symptoms have to be fails to pay close attention to details, makes careless mistakes, difficulty sustaining attention, doesn't seem to listen when spoken to, may not follow through on instructions, trouble with organization, uh, for hyperactivity and impulsivity. What we would add would be often fidgeting with or with or tapping hands, feet, or moving the body, leaving the seat in situations when remaining in the seat is expected, runs around in situations where it's perhaps inappropriate, unable to play or engage in leisure activities quietly, and often has this sense of feeling like they're on the go. Sometimes we have kids who are hyperactive and um, impulsive who talk excessively, blurt out answers, have trouble waiting their turn. And sometimes we have kids who are inattentive, you know, struggling with losing materials and being um, forgetful in daily activities. Well, that's probably why you said third or fourth grade you were talking about, because what kindergartner do not know that, I mean... Sitting still, they have ants in their pants when they're five. Exactly, exactly. In fact, while we're talking, I'm just going to look that up because I, I'm I'm a little perplexed by that um, that statistic. Um, uh, yeah, it says that, and that's true. Seven, um, but I, I feel like that's just um, that's the average age, and it's it's just sort of perplexing to me. It's an average. Um, yep, yeah, it's an average. So, Dr. Salim, is it is it more prevalent in boys or girls, and does it present mm. itself differently in the genders? Yes. So the ratio is three to one, boys to girls, hyperactivity to inattentive. And usually what happens is that boys are flagged earlier and younger for ADHD because their behaviors are often the hyperactive impulsive type. So they're the ones who can't sit still. They're the ones who have trouble keeping their bodies to themselves. They're they're fidgeting. They're blurting out. They might be more aggressive. They're drawing attention to themselves. Whereas inattentive girls are the the picture that you get is someone who is present, quiet, cooperative, but actually in reality is drifting off. But often what happens is for these girls that their intelligence, and for the boys as well, um, for inattentive type, their intelligence compensates for their, you know, struggling organizational and performance issues until the organizational performance issues are greater. The, the, the demands on those are greater than their intelligence can compensate for. And that's when you start to see referrals for inattentive ADHD. Um, I have friends who are dealing with ADHD. And um, based on that, I, I know that it can be rather stressful to manage a household. Uh, I read somewhere that it actually can lead to relationship problems or less family togetherness because maybe they're dividing, conquering um, kind of man on man coverage, if you will, like I'll go take right. Johnny over here or whatever. Um, in your practice, um, what have you seen and what steps can parents take to kind of avoid having to lose that family t- togetherness or mm-hmm. the problems? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you're right. You know, statistically, something like some, there's something like 83% of parents raising kids with ADHD report more stress than those who do not. And actually, um, there's been a recent study that shows that raising children with ADHD is also more expensive, um, as up to uh, as up to five times more expensive. Wow! Because of five, medication no, wait, or um, what? Yeah. Well, I think it has to do with medication, um, outside support. 
to, to supplement whatever the school is not doing, uh, replacing um, lost belongings, uh, partic- special activities to assist your child or enrich their lives. You know, kids who may not be good, particularly with academics, may be excellent at welding <laughs> or, um, or art or, um, um, or something like that. And so parents will often try to find outlets for those behaviors. Sure. So it is, it is stressful, um, and it's also more expensive. Um, what do I recommend for families? Well, I could spend about four hours talking about this, and since we have 30 minutes, I'll be brief. Essentially, um, I wrote a book called What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew. Um, and um, and in, in this book, what I did was I interviewed dozens of kids with ADHD And what I found is that there were certain themes that they were talking to me um, about. And one theme was that they wanted um, they wanted their parents to manage themselves better because when parents lose their temper, it's very hard for kids with ADHD who already struggle naturally with impulse control and emotional control to manage themselves. And so I and they want parents to. understand and forgive them, even if they don't understand and forgive themselves. They would like a more participation and more say in programs and plans that are created for them. They would like parents to do what they say they're going to do more often, not to be perfect, but just to, so that there's more consistency. And they would like help with routines at home because these, help, these routines help these kids stay on track and stay centered. And finally, they would like more positivity in their lives. Um, and they feel like they get a lot of negative, negative feedback about themselves, um, about how, what, you know, they're constantly receiving messages about what they could do differently or better. Mm. We so learned about I that before. All- <laughs> we learned about caboosing. Yes. Like, don't, don't caboose it. Don't say, you know, oh, you cleaned your room, but I wish you did it every day or like that. Exactly. Caboosing. I love that. That's a great, um, um, that's a great term. So I took this information and then based on my own clinical experience and workshops I've done with parents, I came up with what I call the five C's approach. And, you know, the five C's approach is, is good parenting, solid parenting, um, that, um, is just, um, right on for kids who are out of the box thinkers. And uh, the first C is self-control. You, as the adult, you manage yourself first before you try to manage your child. If you're yelling at your child, don't think your child's not going to yell back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's kind of like the oxygen mask on an airplane. You put yours on first and then on your child. And so that's that's the first thing. You have to manage yourself and, and then work with your child to manage themselves. And this is how you're modeling self-control and emotional regulation. The second C is consistency. And this is, uh, I'm sorry, the second C is compassion. And this means accepting your child for who they are, not who you want them to be, or you expect them to be compared to their 
neurotypical, you know, peers. Um, and, and compassion is also about self-compassion. It's about having compassion for yourself as a parent. You know, raising a child who is an out-of-the-box thinker is very challenging. And particularly kids with ADHD are very skilled at pushing all of your buttons, often at the same time. And so you need to give yourself a break that you're doing the best you can with the resources you have available to you in any given moment, just like your child is. Only they lack few, they lack resources because of their age and their development. And so... Um, that compassion is a really important part of how you approach your parenting. The third C is collaboration. And this means working with kids and letting them have a say in the plans that you're creating for them. And that includes plans at school. If you're having an IEP meeting for an ADHD kid, whether they're five or they're 18, they should come in for a little teeny part of that when they're five and longer when they're 17 so that they can talk about what's going on for them or what they like to do or what they don't or what makes them upset and what seems helpful. This is important. And it also lets them know that their voice matters to you. Yeah, there's buy-in. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I was about to say. They Then they have buy-in. And collaboration also means using incentives rather than the because I said so, um, you know, uh, language and modeling that certainly was, I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work anymore because it's a fear-based model and it doesn't teach skills. And kids with ADHD need skills. All kids need skills. These kids in particular need skills because the frontal lobes, which is the last part of the brain to develop. It's right behind your forehead. It's called um, the, the prefrontal cortex. And it's the seat of all of these executive functioning skills that are skills that help us, the command center of the brain. They help us get stuff done. They don't finish developing in a neurotypical brain until age 25. Right. And they finish in an ADHD brain with about a three-year delay. Okay. So that means that kids are building these skills later and there's a delay in their being able to really kind of grasp them and use them. The fourth C is consistency. And this does not mean doing the same thing all the time because you can't. No one can. But it means having purposeful exceptions and explaining when there is one. So, for example, if your rule is 30 minutes of TV while I cook, cook, cook dinner every night, and then you get and you break a glass while you're cooking and there's glass all over the floor, and you say, you can have another show, then you explain later, listen, you, can have, you had another show because I broke a glass. It's not the new normal. Kids with ADHD will think, well, that's the new normal, right? Because it happened this one time. Okay. The other thing about consistency that's important is that you notice consistent efforting. And that means kids who try. When they're trying, noticing that they're actually trying is just as important as noticing when they succeed. Because for kids with ADHD, they're often concrete thinkers with fixed mindsets. And we want to help them have a growth mindset. And a growth mindset means I try, I try again, maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work, in which case I have to regroup and try some more. The last C is celebration. And this is about acknowledging, validating, and encouraging your children along the way, as I just said, but also when they do things that you ask, no matter how small. You clear the table for me, I give you a high five. You go upstairs when I ask, I tell you I really like that behavior. 
For kids with ADHD who have ADHD, specific praise is very useful for them because it counteracts the negativity bias in the brain. And they hear a lot of negativity, redirection. One child said, I don't know why you guys think there's anything, anything like positive feedback. You know, you adults are wrong. It's always bad. There's no such thing as positive feedback. Wow, um, that's Yeah, and you know, when I've traveled around the country, I ask parents, you know, what do you think the ratio is of positive to negative statements for your kids? Because Barbara Fredrickson, uh, uh, who's a psychologist and researcher, has found that the ideal ratio is three to one, three positives for every negative. You know, and I'll ask you, Tracy, and, and what do you think the ratio is for kids with ADHD? How many, po- how many negative statements do you think they hear each day for one positive statement? I would say 25. <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad you didn't say five. Okay. Um, average parents average say somewhere between 15 and 25. And kids themselves will tell me sometimes one to 30. Yeah. Wow. I just remember That's growing simple. up, my, my brother was yeah. always in trouble. And no one knew what was going on at the time. But, you know, he, he, it was a, right. a question of being told something and then not listening or not hearing. And like he'd be grounded after being late for curfew. And the minute he was ungrounded, he would go out and stay after curfew again. You know, it was just the cause and effect. Right. So yeah. I, I totally get how parents go negative. And, and it's really good to know that we have to try and stop that. You know, I also grew up in a family with a brother with undiagnosed and untreated ADHD. Um, and so I, I think you and I could have a long conversation mm-hmm. offline sometimes about what that was like to be the sibling in that family. I think that's for sure why I became a psychologist. I'll bet. Um, when, when kids, when parents are talking and, and, um, they want to take something back, you know, like when they're all in the, in the heat of the moment, when parents are uh-oh. like getting frustrated. What I do in those situations, actually, is I do a take back of the day. I feel like every family should allow each person of the family to have a take back of the day. Sometimes we say things we regret. And, you know, it, it, how, do we, how do we handle that? How do we allow for there to be a pause in the action so that there is a, um, a take back of the day? Um, I think that everybody should have the option of being able to realize they said something that wasn't appropriate and take it back and offer a genuine apology and allow people to move on. Okay. I'd I'd have those every day. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Um, What about, let's just get down to sort of the brass tacks. In in terms of things like homework or being on time, chores, Mm -hmm. uh, slumber parties, you know, how can parents approach these you know, seemingly everyday activities when their kids are equipped differently? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I think obviously it's different for every child. Um, For me, one of the things that I think makes a big difference is that um, taking some time to, uh, to prepare for and plan for various activities, that would include morning routine, evening routine, parties, um, chores, having some kind of a simple system set up. And so the simple system in general would include a list of what the steps are. Um, don't expect that a kid who's wired differently is going to be able to clean their room on their own. Um, they may need a list. When first thing you do this, then you do this. You mm-hmm. work on that together. They may need a body double where you're in the room, you know, 
folding laundry and they're picking up things from the floor. They may need a game, which is like, let's see who can pick up things from the floor within um, 10 seconds. Who can get the most things? Let's go. Um, so uh, and all of those things can be helpful. And in, in the morning in particular, rather than you as a parent being the reminder machine, I strongly encourage you to sit down with your son or daughter and make a list. What are the things that you have to do in the morning? Let's write those down. Put it on the fridge, and then you can say, check the list, right. rather than I'm going to tell you what it is. Because if they're checking the list, then they're going to be building their executive functioning skills, um, sequencing, organizing, planning. Um, and so that helps kids. Issues such as slumber parties and, and other things, that's really uh, very specific to different families. Some kids with ADHD are ready to have a slumber party. Some kids aren't, in which case they can have what I call a mock sleepover. They go to the party and they just don't sleep there. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. You know, and they may have a friend, and what I would encourage is to have a friend where um, that friend uh, can, they can try sleeping over at their house, and then at any time they can call to come home Yeah, we build up that skill. We call mm-hmm. it laid-overs in my house. Laid-overs? A laid-over. I love that. Yeah. A laid-over. That's great. Do you have suggestions for homework? Um, and Because sometimes parents aren't home when homework happens. Do you suggest a right. list for that, too? Well, the thing is, if you're not home when homework happens, it's very hard for you to manage homework. Right. Um, you can attempt to make a list. You can set rules about technology. But there's no, there's no enforcement because you're not there. So some kids will do homework because they have to and they want to get it out of the way and they know that their medicine leaves their body by like 4.30 in the afternoon and then they really don't have any concentration left. And some kids will game until you walk in the door. Mm-hmm. And so it, you have to kind of know who your kid is. And so what I encourage uh, as much as possible to avoid homework hassles is something called family work time. And what that is is that everybody is sitting down at the table together doing their own thing. But you are there doing whatever millions of work, whatever, everybody has stuff that they are backed up on. So whatever you're backed up on or you need to get done, you're working on. Your child is working on their homework. Your other child is working on their homework. And maybe your partner is also at their computer doing something. Everybody's there. This way you can witness what's happening and um, you can answer questions if, if need be. The other thing about homework is you have to have a, it's, you really have to have a conversation with your kid and maybe with the teacher about homework. How long can your child actually study for at home at the end of a day? Some kids it's five minutes, some kids it's 55 minutes, depending on their age, depending on whether they're hyper focusing and what they're doing is interesting to them. So we want to set up a work period, which is why this family work work time is so important, where it's perhaps you work for 20 minutes and then you take a three minute break. You decide in advance what you're going to do in the break, jumping, jumping jacks, Mm -hmm. getting on the exercise, running around the living room, going to the bathroom, having a snack, checking your text. If you can get off the phone after and then that's a timed break. Then you do another work period and this time maybe it's 15 minutes then another timed break, another work period, and then at the end, you earn a big incentive. And usually that's screens. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of kids want. Yep. Um, it could also be time with you. So what would happen is that rather than 
you know, arguing every day about this or that but with the screen. You say, okay, you come home, you can have X amount of screen every single day unless you're posting something inappropriate or going to inappropriate websites, then you don't earn that. But you get 20 minutes no matter what. After you finish your homework, you get another 30 minutes. Um, and so, um, and that would also have to do with whether you get off screens without arguing with me for the first, the first set of screens. If you get off without arguing with me, then you earn that second bonus. But if you don't, then after you finish homework, you have to pick something else from the list. Sure. So it's not going to be screened. Sure. So we- this, is a, this is a very much a collaborative process. Because if your child agrees to things, you can refer back to that agreement. But if you are telling them what it's going to be, they, they have no skin in the game. Yeah, that's an edict. Yeah. We recently posted an article um, about today's parents constantly checking the student portal, you know, when you can go on your mm-hmm. an yes. app and see what the grades are and missing homework assignments. And um, mm-hmm. two of our listeners actually commented under under that post about their kids with ADHD and the need for uh, parental help in tracking these assignments and time management. Is this something that you would mm-hmm. suggest? And when, when do you need to like, at what time do you have to back off or do you not back off when you have a child with ADHD? Uh, well, uh, I think that actually it is true that kids who have ADHD do need, um, parent, more parental help tracking their assignments making sure they turn in their assignments. This is why um, we want to sit down together to do homework, that family work option, if that's possible, if your child cannot get it done um, successfully on their own. It's also very confusing for kids with ADHD or twice exceptional kids because schools will have a portal where homework is, but not all the homework is on the portal. And when that's the case, then they miss that piece of homework. Or some teachers are using the portal and some teachers are using their own website. So you'll go and you'll see, oh, oh, I only have English and science. That's because my math teacher put their assignment up on their portal, but not on the on the main, you know, right. uh, thing. And so this is where parents need to be involved in helping kids with ADHD streamline where their assignments are and how they're accomplishing them. Sure. Uh, this is a uh, sort of a farther along in life question, but... My brother's oh. my brother stopped taking his Ritalin when he went to college, and it didn't go well. He turned to other drugs. Is that something? Mm-hmm. Is self medication something that parents want to look out for? Absolutely. One of the benefits of actually taking ADHD medication is that it lowers the risk of substance abuse. And so, sadly for your brother, um, he self medicated, uh, and it wasn't um, probably very successful or effective. Uh, it's hard. That's a whole separate conversation. You know, what do you do when kids with ADHD go to college um, or they leave high school and they're doing something, whatever, on their own? How do you help them make appropriate decisions? Because you're not there necessarily, and yet their their frontal lobes are not fully developed, and so they aren't capable of making good judgments as as often as their peers. Yeah. So, in uh, doing your research and interviewing kids for your book, um, was there one thing that really stood out to you that that every kid was saying, like that you would want to drill home for all the families that are affected by ADHD, like what you've heard. Mm-hmm. To, to kind of give over, everyone pause? Over, over and over again, what I heard is my parents are my main support. Mm. That's awesome. Even if, even if the parents 
even if they didn't have a good relationship with their parents, it was like, my dad helps me, even if I don't want him to. Um, I now can tell him when I need help. Um, my parents stick up for me at school. Um, I turn to my parents when I'm feeling sad. My mom helps me organize my backpack. I mean, over and over again. And so even if what you're getting from your child is a lot of pushback and negativity, hang in there because you, you are actually the, the most important people in your child's life for helping them. You're their champion. You are their champion. And they learn how to advocate um, for themselves through you. Well, that makes me a little weepy just thinking about, you know, being acknowledged when, when you, when you love someone so much and you work so hard. It's good to hear that they, that they recognize yeah. that you really, that you really are there to, to be help. their biggest right. cheerleader. And I, I've worked with kids now long enough because it's been almost 30 years that I've been a clinical psychologist. And I, I, it's amazing to me how, um, how, how these kids actually, they make it. You know, a lot of parents are like, how are they going to become independent? And they still can't do this. And they still can't do that. And um, I have to have them. Do, I have to make sure they have, you know, lunch when they walk out the door. They're 17. They forgot their form. <laughs> you know, I want to say they get there. It's just a longer path. And if you can just remember that your kid needs support and what I call scaffolding longer um, than you might. Um, need and it's a fine line between over over supporting and you know allowing them to try try struggle try again you know you're you it's that you will all be figuring this out along the way but the kids kids grow up and they grow up into be really interesting people really interesting um and i work with a lot of different kids i, I want to give a hopeful message out there to parents that your efforts are noticed, and you, you really do make a huge difference in your children's lives. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sharon Celine, uh, author of the book, What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew. Um, thanks so much for the insight, and I think a lot of our, our listeners are going to gain from this. You're welcome, and thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking with you and meeting you. So apparently, parents need to be deliberate in their parenting of kids with ADHD, and they have to practice those five C's. Yes. that Those are good things to remember, and, you know, and, and they relate to all of us. And I have to say the um, celebration of the five C's, I don't have ADHD kids, and I, I could practice a little bit more celebration in my house. And I could practice more consistency. <laughs> I mean, I, I could probably do <laughs> all of them. I could probably them. do a bunch of them. So, um, and most, most of all, I think she mentioned it in the beginning is that, um, a diagnosis doesn't define you as a person and it's just a condition you work with yep. and, um, it's not who you are. Nope. I think she said in the very beginning. So I, I totally agree with that and, and what the kids say. And I like the idea that, you know, they grow up and, and what we do matters. So, you know, if you can hang in there, that's a, that's a great message. That's a great message for all parents. Exactly. Well, and I know something that I'd like our listeners to focus on right what? now. 
What? <laughs> I would like them to go on iTunes and rate us. Oh, yeah. And leave a review for us. We, we really need that feedback. Yeah. You can check out our Facebook page, like us, share it around, tell everyone to join it. Yeah. That group. We, we post stuff pretty regularly, I think, and a lot of people like the funny things that are posted. So Thank goodness for the funny stuff, right? <laughs> Adds a little levity yeah. to the day. Yeah. So uh, you could also call us and leave a voicemail at 331-704-0046 or email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Tracy Weiner. And I'm Ann Johnsos. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy, we make it look good When everybody sees it, they stop and take a look